From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. We're seeing positive news on COVID-19 cases in California and New York, the nation's two biggest hotspots. That's leading to optimism about reopening more businesses. We'll talk with our medical expert about how public health officials will be monitoring the effects. We'll also talk with faith leaders throughout Southern California, with the Justice Department's warning to California that its reopening protocols discriminate against houses of worship. We'll find out how many churches, synagogues, and mosques might be ready to reopen and under what conditions. And LAPD Chief Michael Moore also talks crime in the time of COVID-19. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Pleasure to have you with us today. Hope you're doing well. We, of course, have the Memorial Day weekend coming up in just a few days. And later this week, we'll be talking about your plans. If it's going to be much like any other weekend or you're planning something a little bit different to celebrate the three-day weekend. We've got a very jam-packed show today. Austin Butner, L.A. Unified School Superintendent with us. LAPD Chief Michael Moore will be talking with us about crime during the era of COVID-19. We're also going to talk with administrators of local universities that are planning to reopen with students and faculty on campus in the fall. We're going to talk about the safety protocols that they're putting in place so the students can move back into residential halls and classes can be held on campus in the fall. But first, it's our daily update on COVID-19. Joining us, Professor of Epidemiology uh, at uh, the uh, UC Berkeley School of Public Health, who is also uh, the head of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, Dr. Arthur Reingold. Dr. Reingold, welcome. Happy to be with you. Let's start, first of all, what we're seeing on the numbers here in California. It does appear we're starting to make some headway. Your thoughts on where we stand? Well, first, just to say California is obviously a large and diverse state with 58 very different counties. So uh, I think statewide, uh, what you said is correct. Um, and and, and I, particularly important are the trends in some of our larger urban areas, such as the Bay Area and in Southern California, where I think, again, there is evidence that, that uh, all of the uh, pain and suffering that people have been experiencing through the shutdowns, if you will, uh, is bearing fruit. Could there be other factors that are also at play beyond the shutdowns, people wearing face coverings? Could there be factors associated with the weather? We get that question a lot uh, as to whether the virus would prove less resilient in warmer weather. Well, I think the honest answer is we don't know. Um, people are making extrapolations from other respiratory viruses that clearly do have what we call seasonality. That is, uh, we have what we call flu season. Everyone knows flu season is in the winter when it's cooler uh, in temperate climates. Um, and, and so the extrapolation is that we will, we will see something similar uh, with the coronavirus. I think the evidence from other coronaviruses we know about is mixed on this subject. And the reality is we don't know whether temperature is making a difference. And we also don't know whether when it gets colder next winter, 
uh, whether that will make a difference. In Los Angeles, county public health officials said yesterday they're pointed toward a July 4th reopening. Uh, Obviously, that doesn't mean the way things were pre-pandemic. It means physical distancing, perhaps barriers constructed in certain uh, places where public and employees are doing business. Um, Curbside pickup could be extended in some places. But there is hope that restaurants would be able to expand their outdoor dining while keeping people distance. Your thoughts on the ability to do that, and and I, I guess just as importantly, if not more so, the ability of public health to respond if things start going sideways when we reopen more. So, uh, you know, I think everyone understands that that we do need uh, to try and get people uh, back to work, stores, restaurants, other facilities open. Um, and, and we need to do it in as safe a manner as, as possible. And, and, and so, um, you know, I think that the state, uh, in terms of its guidance and individual counties are, are doing their best uh, to figure out, given the local circumstances, what's appropriate to do and, and when and how to do it. Um, it, it remains to be seen uh, whether a personal behavior, uh, uh, you know, will, will, will uh, continue to uh, try and and uh, reduce the possibility of infection and transmission in the community. Will people go back to the way life was, to normal, if you will, of six months ago? Or will they change their behaviors with regard to social distancing, hugging, shaking hands, wearing masks, things of that kind? And of course, the hope is that personal behaviors will change, uh, that that will allow us uh, to, to be more out and about, for businesses to reopen in a safe way, but we'll have to wait and see. With regard to your other question, uh, first of all, the issue is our health departments ready to to monitor and detect and respond to uh, clusters or, or a, a, a feared resurgence of infections. Uh, is there enough testing available? Uh, and do they have the staff and capacity to do appropriate uh, contact investigations, uh, contact tracing, and if necessary, isolation and quarantine. And and so the hope is that that a we we will be able to detect problems uh, when they occur, and that uh, individual counties will have the resources to respond to them. We're talking with UC Berkeley Professor Dr. Arthur Reingold. He chairs the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at. Cal School of Public Health. If you have questions for him about COVID-19, this part of our everyday series with the latest on the medical side of COVID-19, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. My hope would be, Dr. Reingold, that human nature is such, if there is a spike in a local community, that people, once aware of that, would start taking more precautionary measures just out of um, it being more real to them, the threat of them contracting the virus. And I wonder if we have anything from the history of epidemics or pandemics which would indicate that people's behavior is sensitive to that perception of real risk. 
Well, I, you know, I think there is evidence of that from the flu pandemic of 1918. Of course, once you go further back in history to bubonic plague in Europe and other things, I, I don't know how good the information is, but I think it's a natural human trait. Uh, and psychology and behavioral science, uh, I, I think, would support the notion uh, that, that people tend to respond to threats um, and, and to change their behaviors in response to fear and threats and anxiety uh, in, in a way that may be more forceful uh, than when those threats and fears are, are, are not present. I think that's just normal human behavior. Dr. Reingold, I also wanted to ask you about the origins of COVID-19. There have been calls for China to ban uh, so-called wet markets, um, concerned about the future spread of coronaviruses from animal to human. Your thoughts um, on that and how much of a risk uh, are those kinds of sales practices uh, to China and to the rest of the world going forward? So first of all, leaving aside concerns for the animals themselves and for conservation and, and species preservation and things like that, I think uh, people in infectious disease, epidemiology and public health have been quite worried about um, sale, transport, um, consumption of wild animals um, and, and markets that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, sell such animals for a long time. Uh, so th th this new uh, pandemic uh, simply reinforces what we already knew, which was that if you have a lot of contact between people and various species of animals, uh, there is an opportunity for viruses and, and certainly uh, to, to move from animals into people. And that unfortunately, some of the time that can result in something like uh, this coronavirus pandemic or, or other types of infections. So we've known for some time that it's a bad idea um, and, and that, um, frankly, getting rid of these wet markets uh, would be a good idea from a public health point of view. Um, but of course, culturally, uh, in China, uh, these markets are, are, are have a very long history. Um, uh, people are wedded to their food consumption practices and their beliefs about um, what foods may be uh, beneficial to health or what foods people like to enjoy. Um, so it's not so easy for someone sitting in an office in Berkeley uh, to tell people in China what they should do about their their, their wet markets. But, uh, you know, the other thing I would point out is that w while wet markets are part of the problem, uh, in other places, such as in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where we also can get animal-to-human transmission of viruses like Ebola, um, it's not so much a question of markets as it is the fact that people are hunting for and trying to add protein uh, to their diets in a place where protein is scarce. Uh, and so uh, this is a more complicated problem than just wet markets in China. We're talking with UC Berkeley professor Dr. Arthur Rheingold. He's chair of the De Department of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Berkeley School of Public Health. We're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. We've got some positive news in the past day about clinical um, trials of vaccines uh, involving monkeys. So we have uh, some animal studies that are showing some positive results. Dr. Reingold, can you put that in perspective as sort of where you see us at in this whole long-term process of developing an effective vaccine? 
Well, I think there are two uh, pieces of good news in the last few days. One of the studies you refer to in monkeys that, that suggests that it, it may be biologically possible uh, to vaccinate a, a non-human primate and, and therefore potentially humans um, against this virus. Uh, we, we really not in the past uh, had a vaccine against the coronavirus, um, and there have been questions about how easy or difficult that will be. So I think that's one piece of encouraging news. And the other piece of encouraging news is at least in a, an incredibly small trial, I believe, of eight people, uh, one of the companies working on a vaccine here in the United States that has reported that, the, 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 that those eight subjects did not suffer any ill effects. Uh, that's certainly encouraging. Um, but, but both of those are quite early stage um, uh, findings. Uh, and getting from there to a vaccine that we know is safe and effective and, and have enough quantities to administer to large numbers of people, uh, there are obviously quite a few steps that have to occur uh, before we get to that stage. Dr. Reingold, one of the things that I found curious about the, the whole pandemic is the lack of information about people, particularly uh, the fatalities from COVID-19. Um, and I know that in the future, there will be epidemiological researchers who will be looking at all the information about the kinds of jobs that people did, um, what their family living arrangements were, um, the extent of, of, you know, the people that were in their world, how locked down they were or not in living their lives. But I guess I'm surprised that that sort of information isn't available while we're in the midst of this. And I wonder what the limitations are in conducting postmortem interviews with family members and painting a bigger picture about the individual who died of COVID-19 so that we better understand comparative risks and environmental factors behind the spread. Wouldn't that be extremely valuable information to have now? So I think you're putting your finger on a very important point. It's a really good question. And unfortunately, in recent weeks, uh, the, the question about how many deaths can be attributed to COVID-19 has, has become a politicized issue uh, with, with people in, at high levels, uh, presumably seeing an interest in, in under, uh, underplaying or, or uh, having fewer deaths uh, attributable to this problem. Um, and, and wondering about whether the data that are being reported are accurate or not. Uh, I would make a couple of comments. First of all, people need to understand that in our country, um, not everyone who dies undergoes an autopsy. In fact, it's a small percentage of people who die who have an autopsy. I'd be happy to talk about why that is. Uh, and particularly uh, people with underlying conditions um, uh, who, who appear to die a natural death, if you will, may not undergo autopsy. Uh, there may not have been testing for the coronavirus. Um, so uh, counting people who died who have a positive coronavirus test is almost certain to underestimate the number of deaths. Um, uh, you know, another approach we use in epidemiology uh, is to look at, uh, you know, how many excess deaths occurred during a time period compared to what we would expect based on historical norms and then look to see are there other possible explanations for why deaths increased, even if we can't be sure that all of those deaths were due to coronavirus. That may give us a much more accurate picture of the true burden of death uh, than simply counting the deaths where a, a coronavirus diagnosis was made by, by laboratory testing. 
Of course, there's a, a lot of noise, I would think. I'm sorry to interrupt, just going to interject. There's probably a lot of noise, even in that difference between typical death rate and what we see now because of environmental factors like people isolating themselves and other factors, which would probably have an effect on the death rate anyway, like car accidents are way down, for example. So um, there, there are numerous confounding factors, it would seem, even in using that to estimate. Right, but I don't necessarily mean all-cause mortality. I mean potentially looking at deaths for, from, for example, for, for what appears to be pneumonia, um, where where the case, where the auto accidents are are not being included. But you're right; uh, they're messy data, uh, and so we we try and look at everything possible to to come up with the best estimate uh, that we have. And of course, uh, death rates really reflect several things, not only how many people are getting infected uh, but, uh, and getting sick, but, but what kind of access to health care do they have, uh, what kind of underlying medical conditions do they have that put them at increased risk of severe illness and death, um, and, and what, uh, how good is the care or what modalities of care are available. So death rates are certainly an imperfect measure of what's going on in, in, in the community. And I, I certainly, you know, the point you make about the inaccuracy of death rates is is excellent. Um, what I was talking about was even beyond that. And I understand you first have to determine that someone succumbed to COVID-19. But to me, then, what would be incredibly useful information would be to have a fuller picture of that individual and um, the life he or she was living and what the likely source of that infection was. And uh, so I understand even, you know, determining the cause of death is the precursor to then understanding these other um, circumstances of death. But I would be hopeful that in the future, this would be something that we could get a better handle on. Well, you you know, obviously there is a strong interest in what you're talking about. I would break it into a couple of different parts. One is what what are the factors that influence the likelihood of getting infected with this virus? And then the other is if you become infected, what are the factors that uh, increase your likelihood of getting really sick and dying? Uh, And we we know that that unfortunately a lot of the factors for both of those uh, are, are higher levels among the poor higher levels among uh, black and brown communities, um, uh, higher levels among uh, people who live in crowded uh, multi-generational families. So, so uh, there are social uh, factors that, that contribute to this. And if your point is we should be looking at those social factors uh, to understand why some people are dying, uh, I would totally agree with you. Well, I guess, yeah. Uh, and and I think the question would be so that individuals understand what their potential risk is and how much of it is uh, certain pre-existing conditions. How much is it the work environment, the, the supermarket employee and the exposure she or he may may have to the virus? How, how much of it is um, someone who's working on the front line in health care? Uh, how much of it is the multi-generational family situation with people coming and going, uh, doing essential work out of the house, so that an individual could look at multiple factors and and attempt to have a better understanding of degree of risk. Uh, well, I want to thank you, Dr. Reingold, for joining us and talking about these important issues in public health. We really appreciate uh, you being with us, and I hope we can talk with you in the future. Sure, happy to help. 
appreciated. UC Berkeley, Chair of the Division of Epidemiology and Biostatistics, Dr. Arthur Reingold. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC, Southern California Public Radio. I'd like to hear from you. Uh, if you are a faith leader here in Southern California, what are your thoughts about reopening your house of worship to congregants to come in? Are you thinking about ways of creating uh, safer spaces for people to be able to worship together, but separately inside the synagogue, church, or mosque? Please share with us what you're considering right now. 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722, or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We'll be back in a minute. So good to have you with us on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. You might have heard that the U.S. Justice Department sent a letter to California Governor Gavin Newsom saying that the protocols California has for the reopening of different public activities potentially discriminates against uh, people's religious faith and the ability to gather for worship. And uh, along with that, you've got uh, hundreds of churches who have signed uh, a letter committing to reopening for worship the last weekend of this year on Pentecost Sunday, May 31st. Uh, it's uh, titled The Declaration of Essentiality of Churches. And uh, these churches, I think there are close to a thousand of them now, say they are going to open regardless of whether the state of California says it's safe for them to open or not. My question for you is, uh, if you are a faith leader or you're a particularly active congregant in the leadership of your synagogue, your mosque, your church, I'd like to hear what kinds of discussions are taking place in your faith community about reopening uh, your, your house of worship. We're at 866-893-KPCC, 866-893-5722. Are you looking at ways of keeping physical distance between worshipers? Are you looking at some sorts of physical barriers? Are you looking at floor markings, um, uh, either going into or or within your house of worship? 866-893-KPECC. You can also comment on the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. I'm also interested in hearing from listeners of uh, faith. What is it that would make you feel comfortable about going back to your house of worship and uh, worshiping in person with uh, fellow members of your faith. 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. We have a cautionary tale from Butte County up in Northern California where uh, about 180 people gathered for a worship service on Mother's Day. This was at Palermo Bible Family Church, and um, there was an asymptomatic worshiper who went to that Mother's Day service and potentially—I say potentially because we, we don't know—but potentially uh, caused the coronavirus uh, to be exposed to the nearly 200 people in attendance. They were all ordered to self-quarantine by the Butte County 
County Public Health Department. I don't know whether any of the individuals became symptomatic or tested positive for COVID-19, but it is a cautionary tale of what can happen when you bring together large numbers of people for a prolonged period of time, for an hour or an hour plus religious service, uh, there is the potential of that kind of spread like Butte County has seen. And Butte County was not a hotspot for COVID-19. In fact, it's one of the counties that was given the go-ahead to have an earlier opening uh, of some of their businesses. So this was a place, even though it was not cleared for religious services, I want to make that clear, the church violated the policy there. Butte was ahead on some of the other openings in that county, because it was perceived to be a comparatively safe place for COVID-19. So again, my question for you, if you are a faith leader or a person of faith, what are you looking for as the kind of benchmark that you could safely reopen and bring worshipers together? Secondly, what kinds of safety measures do you think you could realistically implement uh, so that you could have services in person again? David in Lake Forest, good to have you with us. Uh, David, share your thoughts about it, please. I'm really excited to go back to church uh, and see the other congregants, but I am concerned about what measures the church will take to make it safe for everyone. Uh, particularly interested in about you know what kind of protocols are going to be in place for cleaning, and then what are they going to look for in case we have to shut back down again? Yeah, and are there specific measures that your church could take that would make you feel safer about going back in? Uh, it's probably all around cleaning, because um, I think you know from a congregant standpoint, we're probably all aware of the whole six feet. Uh, standing away from each other and things like that. But, you know, how are, how is the church going to, not just for the, for the adults, but for the kids? And, um, you know, singing is such a huge part of worship for, for so many people, um, and that is a potential risk factor. Um, would you be okay with wearing a face covering and, you know, either not having singing at least initially or singing with a face covering? What What do you think about that? I think singing with a face covering is okay, personally. Uh, it might be a little difficult, but you know, I think that's part of worship is part of the service that's important and um, that draws us all, all close together. So uh, definitely worshiping with, uh, with face covering. All right, David, I appreciate it very much. Where do you go to church? I go to church at Crossroads Community Church in Mission Viejo. Very good. David, thank you so much. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Walter in Lincoln Heights says, I'm a health care provider. We've had a couple of patients who were infected at their church with people congregating there. Uh, it is a high risk. And Walter said one of our patients died as a result of a COVID-19 exposure at church. 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page kpecc.org. I just brought up the issue of singing in church. Michael in Long Beach, I understand that you uh, lead the choir at your church. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. A lot of churches will have what they call section leaders. So they'll have one kind of ringer, if you a professional bass, professional uh, alto, professional soprano, professional tenor. What we've been doing, um, you know, everything's shut down right now. We're going in like every other week and pre-recording music for a couple weeks of services on Sunday. But the big thing that strikes me with this is that when and if churches are able to reopen to some degree, you know, the choirs are not going to be able to sing. There's just too many people and too concentrated in an area. 
and it's going to be um, for our church, at least I think our plan is it'll be this, the section leaders who will have to be leading the music for the foreseeable future. If, and when, you know, we're able to, we will, we will be able to reopen, but when we do, it's going to be a slow process. And, you know, the music is going to change, I think a great deal for, uh, for a lot of churches. Which is hard because music is so integral to worship that that's, that's going to be a big challenge. Michael, I also wonder, and again, I'm, I, you know, I'm not a healthcare expert, but from all that I've heard, singing is one of the riskier things to do. And um, do you think that churches will try to have singing with the congregants masked or just forego having, um, you know, uh, people worshiping sing and just leave it to people like section leaders to do the singing? You know, that that's a tricky thing because, you know, we unless you have a some kind of, you know, N95 mask, all the masks are really doing is preventing the spread um, to other people. So that is a very good question. And not even, you kind of caught me off guard. It's not even something that I thought about. Um, you know, if there's enough distance, maybe they'd be able to do it. Fortunately, to some degree, the big problem is that the congregation never sings. <laughs> they never sing along. Okay. <laughs> so you've got one of those reluctant churches. Uh, Michael, where do you go to church? Uh, it's a Bayshore community in uh, in Long Beach. They're, uh, they're, we're doing great things. We're doing, as I said, we're doing online services right now. The funny thing is, I listen to a, a tech show out of San Francisco, and Every weekend, uh, he's got five calls from people who are leading music services looking for video switchers and how to go online. <laughs> I'll bet. Everybody's trying to adjust to what's going on right now. I, I can imagine. Michael, really appreciate your call. Thank you so much. Let's talk with John in Northeast Los Angeles. I understand you're a pastor, John. Uh, what sorts of conversations are you having um, with the leaders in your church about potentially reopening? Um, yes. We uh, have uh, Zoom conferences with uh, the clergy of the um, the vicarage of, of, of Los Angeles, which is like 60 clergy and uh, and other people participate in the last one. Um, uh, the discussion is very measured. Um, they're taking a very uh, cautious approach. But they make a very strong point, the, the Metropolitan, that's the hierarch, made a very strong point that we do, will not, when we reopen, we will not change the mode of, of uh, receiving Holy Communion of the faithful. Really? Uh, what is your church, John? That's the uh, Orthodox Church, uh, the Greek Orthodox Church. My parish is in Lancaster, St. Okay. Helen. Very, very good. So... The traditional, and, and pardon my ignorance about Orthodox Christianity, but is it similar to Roman Catholicism where there is a shared cup? Um, it's, we, the mode of, of communicating the people is different than it is with the Roman Catholics. We have a common cup, and we distribute the, the communion, in, as it were, in both types. That's the uh, the body and blood together in the cup, um, distributed to each person with a spoon. It's called the uh, la vida in, in Greek. Um, the this is an issue. Um, it was an issue back in the '80s, and that that uh, response to the issue that was the AIDS crisis when they didn't really know much about how AIDS was transmitted. Uh, people began this practice of what we call amongst clergy the uh, Antiochian flip because it took off very very largely in the uh, Arab churches where the spoon does not touch 
the lips of the of the communicant. The uh, communicant is supposed to uh, lean the head back like a bird, as it were, like a little baby bird, and the the, the celebrant um, uh, drops the uh, the ho- the, uh, the communion um, gifts into the mouth of the of the communicant without touching his lips. And I could understand where that that works. Uh even with the little that we knew about HIV uh, back in the 80s. In this case, though, to be dropping even over an open mouth, I would think entails risk, um, and you could still get spread, I would think, from that. So, um, but, but your, your um, church leaders are saying they want the traditional approach. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, he, the Metropolitan made it very clear that we will not be messing with the form of communion. Um, it remains, it's a very large controversy. Uh, um, some priests are extremely worried about the transmissibility of the virus. I, I've thought of different strategies like uh, sterilizing the spoon after each communication by putting it in um, pure alcohol. Um, that did not go over well. Um, another priest I know is already doing this. He's putting multiple spoons, keeping them in boiling hot water and, and, uh, and, and communing, uh, a person and then putting the spoon into boiling. uh, Wow. John, I appreciate you sharing uh, what your church is looking at, uh, Greek Orthodox Church here in Los Angeles. Uh, Let me share another comment. Ed in Studio City writes on the AirTalk page, I'll go back when services are held outdoors, such as in a park. Churches could also use their parking lots. That would be something uh, provided there are other parking um, places that are available for churches, but that would be something they could do, again, spacing and holding outside. But, you know, even so, you've got high-risk activities like communion, communion, as Pastor John was mentioning, uh, or uh, singing, group singing, which has a degree of risk as as well. And um, so all of this tremendously uh, challenging for churches, they consider. You can share your comments if you're a person of faith or a faith leader about what you're considering to potentially reopen your house of worship, or if it's totally off the table, you're not looking at reopening for months or years in the future. We're at 866-893-KPCC and post on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. Coming up, we're going to talk with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. He'll talk with us about the top law enforcement issues related to COVID-19. Back in 90 seconds. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Joining us for his regular visit, LAPD Chief Michael Moore. Chief, welcome back. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, let's talk first of all about um, what sort of enforcement, if any, that the department is being called on to conduct uh, for people to keep social distance, wear face coverings when they're out in the world. Are are officers at all intervening in any of those cases or reminding or citing individuals who aren't complying? So we're not citing at this point. There's been a number of reports that there's been arrests and or citations and that uh, particularly communities of color were being impacted while other communities were being left 
uh, alone. And, and that I just want to clarify right off the bat that uh, what we do is, is in regards to face coverings and masks is we en- engage people with the uh, safer at home order, the, the part of public health uh, expectations that if you're in a public setting that you're going to wear a mask or face covering. And we, and we educate people and we ask people to comply. If they're in a business, such as a grocery mart or, or other location that's open during the safer at home uh, uh, quarantine, then they're required by the public health order to wear a mask. And if they don't, then they are the, the business owner is has been directed and is required to have that person leave. In those instances, if the person refused, then they uh, the business could call LAPD, and we have responded to those, and uh, we. Again, educate, we engage with the violator, and either they comply with the requirements of wearing a face covering or mask, or they're required to leave the location. In that instance, the enforcement would be the business owner making a private person's arrest for trespassing for, again, failing to comply with the the requirements of being present in that business. We've also had in today's Times, LA Times, had an editorial on this relative to our efforts out at the beach. And with the opening or partial reopening of the beach, We've uh, educated and are informing the public that they need to wear face coverings or masks anytime they're there with someone other than an immediate family member, and there's no allowing for sunbathing or, or bringing out furniture, furniture or other thing onto the beach. And in that engagement, again, my expectation of my people is that they're going to educate, they're going to engage, they're going to direct people to leave. And as a last resort in in the beach area, people are subject to being arrested or citation. And to date, we've been able to avoid that. And so we're trying to strike a balance where we encourage the the better angels, if you will, for people to uh, abide by these requirements and not require officers to take enforcement action. We're talking with LAPD Chief Michael Moore. If you have a question for him about law enforcement in the time of the pandemic, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Have you gotten very many calls to come out to supermarkets or other retail establishments to remove someone who refused uses to comply with distancing or face covering? Not in, in proportion to all the other radio calls that we have. We have we get generally 6,000 or so radio calls a day that officers will respond to, and we'll have less than 100 that are COVID-related, and most of those are, uh, are not related to people. Uh, they're related to a medical circumstance. They're not really related to an issue of a person not wearing a face mask or or uh, otherwise. The other area of work that we've had is the vast majority of, of non-essential businesses have complied with the mayor's order, but there have been violators. And in those instances, we uh, we go out, we admonish the, the business owner to, to comply with the order. And in instances in which they haven't, uh, then and after repeated uh, uh, warnings, we will take enforcement action. And to date, since the beginning of the mayor's order, which was in approximately, I believe, the middle of March, We've had about 110 businesses that we've uh, done what's called a complaint application, which is a criminal filing with the, with the city attorney's office, and the business is subject to a fine and uh, unlikely but a possible criminal uh, sanction. So the vast majority of Angelinos, though, are complying. There, there are t- times and instances in which people, uh, as this pandemic has, has worn on, uh, have, uh, have gotten into public settings and have not worn a mask or otherwise. I was just out the other day in a circumstance at my own home and, and walked out without wearing a mask. And, and it wasn't purposeful. It's just uh, keeping it in your mind is not always the first thing. So our officers 
uh, engaging people and educating them is, I think, uh, critical to building trust, but also uh, achieving compliance. Again, if you'd like to talk with Chief Moore, we're at 866-893-KPECC or the AirTalk page, kpecc.org. Astrogoth writes on the page, um, how is research into less than lethal weapons progressing? It's progressing okay. I'm, I'm, I will say that a year and a half ago, nearly a year and a half ago, we challenged the academia as well as uh, the business model of, of, people, of companies that produce weapons that are less lethal, meaning that they're not deadly force. Generally, they are able to in, inflict pain or um, a, a physical force that causes an individual to comply. So an individual with a knife or another uh, edge weapon or, or a stick, not having or requiring the officer to have to resort to deadly force to to protect themselves from serious injury or death. So historically, we've had to rely upon an electronic control device, sometimes known as a taser, and we've had what's called a beanbag. We've, in the last few years, moved up to what is a larger beanbag. It's called a 40-millimeter that we found to be more effective uh, as a less lethal tool without uh, unduly or causing uh, significant injury to the person in which the weapon's applied. But we, a year and a half ago, we said to the industry, we're kind of static on this. We're looking for, for some, uh, some newer tools and u- utilizing better technology. What came from that is uh, we're currently using what's called a bolo wrap. We're experimenting with it. It actually shoots a, uh, a, uh, a boomerang, if you will, or a, a wrap of cords that wrap around a person's legs or, or middle extremities, which uh, keeps them from running away or keeps them from attacking an officer. And that's the latest tool that we've had. But I think the development is there's still more opportunities out there, uh, but we're, and we're scanning the marketplace and trying to find it. But I, would, I put an open call out to our inventors to come up with a way that would allow officers and the public in, in times of conflict and in, in physical uh, engagement that we do not have to rely upon or resort to the use of deadly force, but lesser levels. That lasso thing is pretty impressive. I, I saw the video demo of how that works. It is, um, but it, you know, it has, to date, it's, we've had it in place now for about five months. We've used it, um, I think, less than 10 times. Uh, it has had a couple of failures, but it's also had a, a number of instances in which it's been successful. So we're still evaluating it. We'll bring back to the Board of Police Commissioners our findings and recommendations. I'm hopeful that while uh, no tool, no weapon system, if you will, is 100% uh, effective, that it'll be a, a tool that finds merit with us continuing to use it and gives officers an important alternative when faced with an individual who may be have mental illness, may be under the influence of a narcotic or drugs, and is presenting a, a serious threat to the officers, whether it be through physical force or threat of force, or it be the you know holding a, a stick or a rod or, or potentially even a knife. Uh, and this so it gives our officers okay. stand off distance. All right, Tasha in the Crenshaw District says, in my neighborhood, there have been a lot of LAPD helicopter fly orders with um, um, announcements to wear masks and socially distance. She wonders if it's necessary to do that. Yes, I'm not. Well, I'm not aware of our personnel doing that. I know we have patrolled the beaches uh, during the uh, overnight hours because of the luminescence. That is going on uh, this season. We've had a number of people, spectators, and, and I understand it's a beautiful sight. I've not seen it myself, but I understand it's drawn large crowds. And we have used the airship to remind people that the beaches are closed uh, during that period of time and, and for them to, to not be there. 
Uh, I'm not aware of any uh, use of their, our airships for advising people on masks, and nor would I think it would be effective. Frankly, the, the communication from those loudspeakers with the chopper wash, it's at times it can be difficult to understand. So I would look to those communications only being during an emergency situation, and I would not think that uh, that uh, the use of uh, people reminding people to wear face coverings or masks would be warranted by an airship making that communication. If that were to happen, um, I would encourage people to to uh, let us know, and, and certainly we'll look into and ensure that our air crews understand. Okay. What our expect, my expectations are. Dasha, if you can call back and tell us the precise location where this happened in the Crenshaw District or South Los Angeles, that would be that would be helpful, and then we could pass that on to the chief. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. We have many more questions coming in for listeners to ask Chief Michael Moore of the LAPD about uh, what's going on uh, with his department with COVID-19. We'll ask about the latest crime figures, which crimes are down as a result of people staying home and which ones are showing a rise. We'll be back in just 60 seconds. LAPD Chief Michael Moore with us on Air Talk. Chief Moore, uh, what are we seeing in the way of crime trends with people's uh, work and home life so drastically different? Well, it's evolving. Uh, the initial days and weeks of this COVID-19, we saw a dramatic uh, drop in crime in all categories. And then and about the second to third weekend, we began seeing an interesting phenomenon with an increase in grand theft autos, so stolen vehicles. And then that extended into an area of commercial burglaries because of, uh, we presume, because of a number of businesses that were closed uh, due to the uh, safer at home order, what we uh, in response to that we directed our enforcement efforts and we saw our with an increase of 24% of our burglaries commercial burglaries we saw more than doubling of our burglary arrests so we were able to uh, applying our investigative resources and patrol resources we're able to hold some accountability to those that were preying upon those closed businesses same happened with the auto theft the vehicles were generally stolen for one to two to three days and then dropped in the areas uh, where they were taken but we saw our arrests uh, nearly double on those as well the interesting phenomenon on that on both these factors and one of the concerns we have is with the zero bail uh, that was instituted by the judicial system in an effort to downsize prison populations, we have seen an increase in the frequency of people being rearrested. So they're arrested for an account like they've stolen a vehicle or they've broken into a, um, a, a commercial establishment or other uh, type of serious crime. And because of the zero bail, they're immediately released. And what that's created is a circumstance of repeat offenders where we've seen them arrested time and time again. I think there was a report in today's paper about uh, an arrest in Escondido that unfortunately the person was arrested five or six times for significant offenses, uh, uh, felony crimes, and ultimately was arrested most recently for a stabbing of another individual. So that, in that instance, that violent crime resulted in a bail, but the other ones did not, and it somewhat fueled or facilitated him to uh, to go out and commit more crimes. So you've got kind of a real-world experiment of the no-bail policy um, that was sort of pushed forward with COVID-19, right? 
Oh, we do. And, and we do have an appeal process that we can ask a judge to afford a bail on an offense. And I've seen us apply that where the judges have recognized that the recidivist, that the individual who's habitually going committing additional crimes, they are willing to uh, imply, uh, to impose a, uh, a bail other than zero. However, I'm troubled because at the same time this past weekend, we had an arrest of a woman who was involved in a hit and run fatal, a felony. And in that case, uh, the uh, the bail was set at zero, and that you know we went and did apply for a deviation and it was denied. So I think that what's going to be important on this issue of bail reform is that there is an assessment tool that allows both the people, uh, the, uh, those representing the people of the state of California, as well as the defense, uh, public defense or or others, to, to on a case by case basis bring before a judge. And the arbitrariness of zero bail, I don't think works. But I also don't think that the the in, um, inconsistent means of the existing bail system that existed previous to COVID-19 had it on had it entirely right either. So I think this is uh, something we see occurring not just here in California, but across right. the state or across the country. New York, New York is, for instance, probably the one that comes immediately to mind that went with a zero bail prior to COVID-19, and they have seen some 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 pretty uh, strong negative. Uh, uh, reactions that uh, I think all of us should pay close attention to. All right. LABD Chief Michael Moore with us. Tasha did call us back and said neighborhood where she heard uh, those orders given from the police helicopters were near Hyde Park Boulevard between Crenshaw and West Boulevard. So uh, just just so that's the neighborhood. Chief, we've had a number of uh, listeners, Diana in Hollywood, Glenn on the air talk pace page. Want to ask about your wife and daughter going to Arizona on vacation. And I know the department put out a statement that there'd be no comment about your family members. And we understand that for security reasons, of course. Um, But is there some response you can give us to the public concerns about that and the potential exposure that it puts you at? Well, I'm thankful of my wife and daughter. They're home. They're safe. Uh, I have previously said, uh, and uh, my public information director echoed basically my statement, which was I'm not going to comment on uh, my family, uh, the, the family matters are private, and one that I wish to uh, continue uh, that position. Uh, their actions uh, were lawful. They, they traveled uh, to a location that uh, for, was allowed for the activities they're involved in, and, and they, I also encouraged them to be safe, and they were, I believe, and they're back home, and I'm, I'm thankful that they're safe and healthy, and that's as far as I'll comment. Okay. Uh, Also wanted to ask you um, before we go about Pan Pacific Park. We have a listener who said people climb the fence, they play soccer on the field, and police aren't doing anything about it. There are 40 people playing soccer and they're unface covered. So in those instances, we are responding to those, those types of calls, and our officers are, again, engaging and educating and standing by for people to, conf- to comply. Uh, this is, our effort is not to go in and, and rally up uh, 40 people and, and subject them to a citation or to an arrest. The, we recognize the efforts now are to downsize our, 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 uh, our custody settings as an effort to ensure that people are not exposed to COVID-19. And the... Uh, the effort to, however, is not to ignore or, or minimize in, in those violations of organized activities on parks uh, need to uh, comply with the order. And, with that, and that is for officers to 
it is appropriate for them to go out there to meet with uh, the group, uh, safe distancing, and encourage them and then direct them and stand by and ensure that they comply with the order. Uh, body cam video has been released by the department after a citizen video was released of one of your officers repeatedly punching a Boyle Heights man who was unarmed. Uh, the investigation uh, proceeding for uh, potential use of excessive force. What, what are you specifically looking at in this incident? Well, the investigation is still ongoing, and we've involved, uh, it's a criminal investigation, uh, and as well as administrative one, and we have in, invited uh, the district attorney's office to monitor the investigation. It's my intention to have it completed uh, and to evaluate the officer's actions as well as the individual that they came in contact with, and I'll look from that uh, from a standpoint of department policy as to use of force, as to the uh, nature of the, the tactics used, uh, and exhibited, uh, and then uh, the entire case will be referred to the district attorney's office for them to review relative to any criminal aspects of the of that in involvement. In the interim, the officer involved has been assigned home. I've I've uh, released relieved him of his peace officer powers, and he is on administrative leave pending the outcome of this investigation. It's a very serious one. Uh, it's one that I take uh, I, I don't take lightly. We assigned our force investigation division. All right. To conduct it, and I released a critical incident video on it uh, just this last week that provided the body-worn video that was part of the investigation. I have to conclude, Chief Moore. Thank you so much for joining us. Please uh, keep yourself safe, and we wish the best to you and your department. Michael Moore, Chief of the LAPD. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. We're going to be talking education for much of this hour. And then it's about taking to the streets with dining al fresco. A number of Southern California cities are looking at closing off some of their main streets for restaurants to set up tables and people to be able to eat outdoors and physically distance and enjoy the dining experience. Long Beach, Pasadena, Palm Springs, just three of the cities that are moving in this direction. We'll find out from the mayors of Long Beach and Palm Springs how far along uh, the way they are to making this happen in their downtowns. A little bit later this hour in higher education, we'll talk with administrators at three local universities who are planning for in-person classes and the return of students to residence halls in the fall. We'll talk about uh, the way they're coming up with uh, safety protocols for their campuses and how they're communicating to their students and their faculty members about the start of school on campus in August or September. But we begin with K-12 education and the superintendent of the nation's second-largest school district, L.A. Unified, Austin Butner. Mr. Butner, good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me on. So uh, let's talk first about summer school and take this chronologically. So what is the plan for summer school compared to how it's been in previous years? We're going to offer summer learning for every student, which we've never done before. Uh, we think it's important that students continue to learn. We think it's important we provide structure and continuity uh, in a child's schedule during the course of the day. So summer school will be available for all students. We're going to continue to provide the intensive support, uh, the credit recovery work that we've always done. Uh, 
We're going to offer the foundation pieces in math and literacy for all grades. And we've got some exciting new offerings together with community partners like Fender Guitars, Illumination, the Animation Studio, uh, James Cameron, the Storyteller, where we'll weave in what they can bring. Uh, Fender, for instance, is going to donate guitars. Illumination is going to help our students learn to uh, draw, create animation, and tell their own stories. And James Cameron's going to take high schoolers on a voyage in the Titanic to learn about physics and biology, the deep ocean, and tell the stories of those who are on the boat. So lots of exciting things in store. We hope every family who's listening finds their student or their child up for summer school. And um, where are you at in equipping all those uh, students who didn't have devices or didn't have broadband access when it comes to hotspots and devices? Is everybody equipped now? Everybody that we can contact. Uh, We've reached out through schools, uh, through phone calls. We can't knock on doors. But any way we can find a student who is with us when we close school facilities on March 13th, we've tried to reach them. And every student who needs a device, a hotspot, connection to the Internet, we're providing. So I would say almost there. We're in the 98 99% all the way K through 12. Now, there will always be some that we missed or some where a device breaks or some where the Internet access isn't working. We've set up a hotline. Families can call us anytime. We'll make sure that device, that access is provided right away. And um, on a typical day, what percentage of your average daily attendance is being fulfilled? Boy, uh, typical would be very different. (laughs) Different schools, very different at uh, elementary versus, let's say, high school, for instance. We do know in the course of a week that almost all students connect with their school. Uh, That's a good place to start. We do know that schools are using many different ways to connect to students, and those different applications aren't necessarily all connected. Uh, For instance, I had a nice conversation yesterday with the CEO of something called Classroom Dojo, which is an engagement application our teachers and students are using in elementary schools. It's not connected yet to the main LA Unified learning platform called Schoology. We're working to make that connection, which will allow us to better track it. So I'd say almost all students are connected weekly. On a day-by-day, depending upon the instructional program your teachers provided you with, you may or may not need to connect. So connection may mean you're not learning because you may not be paying attention, or it may mean you're learning a lot. And the absence of a connection, if your assignment is to read a book or work on a writing assignment, also can be misleading. So the daily connection looks a little bit different, and I think a direct comparison to the previous model where you'd say, is a student in school and measure attendance as a proxy for so many other forms of engagement isn't as simple and doesn't relate directly to online. Do you have an estimate of the percentage of students who are actively engaged, whatever you think is the best comp for what used to be classroom attendance? Well, almost all are engaged. Uh, We do know that. They're connected. We do know they're engaged in some form of learning. I'd say we're still several weeks away from being able to try to help folks like yourself and your listeners translate it to the previous attendance-based model. Because even attendance was just a proxy. If a student was in class, it doesn't necessarily mean they were engaged in learning. Sure. assumed all of that. Uh, and the converse is equally true online. So we're, we're still a, ba- a ways away from knowing everything we'd like to know. Uh, but our feedback from schools and from many, many families is learning is happening, engagement is happening. 
we're going to continue to make it better and better. That's the goal. We're talking with Austin Butner, superintendent of LA Unified. If you have questions for Mr. Butner, you can uh, share them with me on the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. You can also call 866-893-5722, tweet at AirTalk, post on the AirTalk Facebook page, and I'll do my best to choose some of those questions to pass on to Superintendent Austin Butner. Um, I want to ask you about the budget crisis your district faces and what you're looking at in the May budget revision from Governor Newsom. Um, it it uh, looks rather dire for your district if there aren't additional funds uh, coming from the federal government or from the state. Um, typically, in a circumstance like that, you would be giving early notice to teachers that they could be cut uh, in an effort to balance the budget. We're past that March deadline to do that. Is there still an opportunity, if necessary, for the district to cut teachers? Well, let's go back to the assumption, because I think let's challenge that assumption that funding will be less or should be less. Uh, it's going to cost more to go back to school. We need to continue to provide the devices and the connectivity. That's an additional cost. We need to make sure schools are not just clean but sanitized and everyone in schools has personal protective equipment. We're going to need to provide more mental health support than ever. And we're going to need to make sure where gaps in learning have occurred, we address those. And I'll frame it through the journey of a second-grade student who we're just teaching how to read so she can read to learn for the rest of her life less isn't an optional exercise for her when more is needed. We either help her now, and she is a foundation to reach her full potential, or we don't help her, and the study after study will tell us she's more likely to drop out. She's more likely to become incarcerated. Her lifetime earnings will be less than half of her peers who do graduate high school. So I think the assumption that we're going to look at schools differently than we looked at or are looking at the healthcare system is just flawed. We've risen to the occasion to make sure our hospitals have everything they need and to make sure we're trying our best so more people are not infected with this awful virus. Shouldn't we be taking the same approach to schools? Because the harm or the consequence to that young girl, that second grader, I can make an argument she's as much at risk for learning loss as she is for contracting the coronavirus. So I, I want to challenge that assumption. I, I understand, but we still know from the Great Recession when it was so difficult to come up with the revenue necessary to fund the district, there were significant cuts. This could be a similar circumstance. Maybe it will be, as as you suggest, that the money will be found and, and this it becomes the ultimate priority. But if that isn't the case, how will you go about um, potential layoffs with the district? Yeah, it becomes math, Larry. The 97% of the funds the state provides us are spent at schools, and all of our money comes from the state. So the state gives us money, 97% goes to schools, the rest is to administer the district. If there's a 10% cut, do the math. There will be cuts at schools. There's no way around that. That's math. But I'm suggesting before we get to that point that all of us need to take a step back and say, we saw the consequence of the Great Recession and what it meant for schools and cuts in schools and the harm to students. And are we really going to do that again? Now, special ed is a huge part of what LA Unified does, and that funding was kept consistent in Governor Newsom's budget. So does that comparatively put your district in a better position than some of the others? Uh, I think special ed, before we get to the point of constancy, let's look at inadequacy the federal government, under a law called IDEA, which 
uh, was passed by a bipartisan slate of uh, congressmen and women many years ago, provided for a certain amount of funding. Congress funds that only to one-third of what it should fund. Within the state of California, special ed funding goes not to where the students are, but equally to all school districts based on your enrollment, not based on the actual occurrence or the actual services you're providing. So special ed funding in the state of California, we have twice the number of proportion of students with moderate to severe disabilities in our schools as the state average, but we're not getting twice the funding, and we should be. So continuing funding as is for special education means those students with disabilities in Los Angeles Unified are not getting the funding that they should. We provide the service. We become a destination for it. Students with moderate to severe disabilities, families choose where to live based on where their children can get the best service. And we're proud Los Angeles, San Diego, other places have become destinations for the service. The dollars need to go where the student is, not to all school districts across the state uh, equally, because equal does not mean equitable when it comes to students with special needs. You've, you've got a, a team at L.A. County um, Office of Education, a special team that's monitoring the expenditures by your district. Do you think, particularly given the amount of spending uh, that you've done as a result of COVID-19, including feeding not just your students but their family members as well with with grab-and-go meals, um, that the county could end up taking over the district? Uh, The county uh, is looking at anything we do that is an emergency authorization in the context of this, as they're looking at all the other school districts. It's not unique to Los Angeles Unified. And so far, they've verified and agreed with everything that we've done. And feeding children and adults is the right thing. We've been very clear since the outset we're doing it because we can, and we're doing it because nobody else is. We just conducted a survey of families we serve since the coronavirus came just a few months ago to our community. More than half of the families have had someone in that household lose a job. The need is very real and growing. And if the county or the city or the state want to come in and provide the adult meals, we'll step back. But in the absence of their efforts, we're going to continue to do it because it's the right thing. I think the opposite should be looked at, which is the county, the city, and the state should be showing up with dollars to help support the effort because the need's there. And you're going to keep, you're going to keep providing the meals for full family members uh, at the schools? Absolutely. We're talking with Austin Butner, superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified School District. He joins us on AirTalk, talk about what's going on with LAUSD, the huge challenges the district faces. Now, let's take a look at the fall. In a couple minutes, we're going to talk with college administrators who have made the decision they are going to be reopening their campuses in the fall. Where are you at in the decision-making process as to whether students will be welcomed at at least some campuses? in mid-August. We're still doing our homework and doing it alongside health experts and scientists. So we work with the county health experts. We have a team working alongside scientists at UCLA, epidemiologists, virologists, testing experts, because it's the science that's going to provide the foundation for the best and most safe return to schools. Just the science, not elected officials uh, pondering different alternatives and spreading the desks apart will be the easy part. So we've got to be guided by science, and let's see what we've learned so far in the science. On March 13th, when we closed school facilities, there were no occurrences in our schools, none. We did not want to be the Petri dish where the device, or the, device the, uh, 
disease became shared with others in the community. Since then, there are now almost 40,000 cases in Los Angeles Unified, and scientists tell us the disease is easier to spread and individuals without symptoms can spread it. So the talk of reopening right now is not built on a foundation of science. It's built on conjecture and discussion about what the economy needs or what those in the community may need in terms of their life. Well, and what students need, they're competing scientific priorities, I think you could argue. Um, And the ones that you're talking about in terms of the spread of COVID-19 are absolutely critical. But as you know better than me, on the other hand, you've got students who are really struggling and are uh, falling behind or, or falling out because online learning, for a variety of reasons, is not working for them, whether it's the platform itself and the way that they learn or whether it's the home environment in which they live getting in the way of that. So isn't there also a scientific imperative to get classes back on campus as you're trying to keep people physically safe? students back in schools. That's where learning best occurs, in particular for some of our most vulnerable, our youngest learners, who are uh, less capable at this point in their lives of learning independently. So I absolutely agree with you. But when I hear conjecture that we can move desks apart and somehow that is called safe, it may be less risky and we're reducing risk. But any conversation we're going to have with the school community about reopening is going to make sure all understand the risk being taken, how we're trying to mitigate or reduce the risk, and what the benefit is of being back in a school community. And uh, balanced. But I think that uh, there's too much uh, discussion about spread the desks apart with the assumption that somehow that makes it all well and good. Well, and, and, and the bigger risk is arguably to your faculty members and staff members. So have, have you thought about the potential for your older teachers and, and those who have underlying conditions about what this would mean for them? It, it will be, we have a working group together with our labor partners, so students, staff, and family members helping us think through these issues. And it will not just be to staff in schools because students have the risk of bringing the virus home where they may have an elderly grandparent or someone else in part of their family. So the exposure risk in reopening schools is to students, staff, family members who might visit campus, or students or staff who might take it home to others in the household. All those things we're looking at very, very carefully. In the coming weeks, we'll share more. We're planning to start the new school year at August 18th, as you said, and whether we're back in schools in some hybrid model or not able to be safely back in schools, we haven't made those decisions yet. Austin Butner, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for talking with us today on Air Talk. Larry, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you, Austin Butner, Superintendent, Los Angeles Unified School District. Coming up, we'll talk about higher education here in Southern California. We have top administrators at three local universities who will talk about the reopening of their campuses in the fall, how they're intending to do it, uh, what sorts of risk management is a part of that, and what they're hearing from their faculty and students. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We'll be back in just one minute. A little bit later this hour on Air Talk, we'll take a look at some novel ideas cities are considering for getting their restaurants back and open and providing an on-site dining experience. 
Pasadena, Long Beach, Palm Springs are all in the midst of figuring out if they can close thoroughfares and allow restaurants along those streets to bring tables out to allow people with physical distancing to have meals and a dining experience uh, in a social setting. We'll talk about those plans coming up a little bit later this hour on Air Talk. Last week, we talked with the chancellor of the California State University System, Tim White, who was telling us about how they, with just a few exceptions, are planning to do distance learning come this fall. They're not planning to bring students, for the most part, back onto campus. Now, some of the CSUs do have residential facilities, but for the most part, they have a higher percentage of commuting students. But there are three uh, universities who join us today on the program and a number of others that are taking this approach who are reopening campus, reopening residence halls and dining facilities come this fall. We'll talk about the numerous challenges they face in doing that, how their communities have responded, and how they're attempting to navigate the potential risk to their communities. Joining us from Concordia University in Irvine, College President Michael Thomas. Sir, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Larry. I'm very, very happy to be here. So share with us how your school is is going through this process. Do you have a, a committee of different campus stakeholders who are hashing this out? Yes, actually, in, uh, we've been meeting basically since uh, March, as most of the universities throughout the United States have been doing. Um, as of April, we formed uh, three distinct task forces to uh, collectively try to answer all kinds of different questions regarding the various scenarios we face, looking at the academic calendar, academic modalities, physical distancing of our um, residence halls as well as dining um, dining halls and classrooms. We're looking at testing and tracing, uh, health and safety measures, all kinds of different scenarios. So we have uh, three task forces focused on on-ground operations and reopening academics and finance, and uh, those uh, make up about 27 different members of the administration, faculty, and staff. And is is there much um, dissension uh, among members of the community with those who just feel like you shouldn't be reopening in the fall um, and others who are enthusiastic for it, or do you feel like you've got consensus? I would say it's fair to say that we have... Um, a pretty good sense of consensus here, not only faculty, staff, and students, but students and their families. Uh, we've been hearing very consistently from students. I've been, I've been um, conducting various uh, Zoom seminars with current students over the spring semester, and they are very much looking forward to coming back to campus. Of course, it's a balance. And so there are always um, students and uh, faculty and staff members who will be immunocompromised, and we will handle those as appropriate. Um, and this is a balance, right, trying to um, provide students with a meaningful collegiate academic experience while working to minimize the risk to everyone, students, staff, faculty, as well as our neighbors in Irvine and families. Let's let's talk about the residence halls, uh, President Thomas. Um, what sorts of ways are you going to, particularly with the the restrooms in residence halls, which are shared? How are you going to deal with the safety issues there? Well, one of the things at Concordia University of Irvine, we are blessed that our residence halls are are pretty spacious. Uh, we have a lot of apartment style residence halls, so we have we have a committee 
working on specifically on opening the residence halls. Currently, we can ho host more than 900 students, but this committee has determined that with physical distancing and with physical barriers, we'll be actually putting up um, medical grade curtains um, in the various rooms. And we believe we can uh, house safely 750 students and also have sites for uh, quarantine and isolation, as we do with any academic year uh, regarding influenza. In terms, of, um, in terms of bathrooms, we are going to be using our contractor that provides services to be cleaning um, in a very regular way, in an iterative way, uh, throughout the entire semester. We're talking with the president of Concordia University in Irvine, Michael Thomas, joining us. And just as a side note, he just started the job in January. So talk about walking into an unexpected firestorm of, uh, of COVID-19 and, and having to adapt uh, fast with his uh, administrative team and the rest of the campus community. What a challenge. Also with us from Chapman University, uh, which is in the city of Orange, Glenn Pfeiffer, he's Provost and Executive Vice President for Academic Affairs. Provost Pfeiffer, thank you for joining us today. Um, what are some of the ways you're looking at, at dealing with risk of COVID spread come the fall? Good morning, Larry, and thank, thank you for having me on. Um, we are uh, planning right now to return to campus in the fall uh, in compliance with all of the uh, Orange County and State of California health authorities in, in whatever uh, phase of, return, of returning to our uh, normal economic operations that they have in place. Uh, of course, we're going to be uh, implementing uh, a plan that will, that will include uh, various mitigation strategies, social distancing, uh, screening of students for symptoms, uh, providing a, a very rigorous uh, health intervention program for those students who do have symptoms. Uh, obviously, people in public places will be wearing uh, face coverings. We'll be using various PPE in our, in our science labs and, and, and courses in which that's appropriate, and following the sanitation protocols throughout the campus, including classrooms, bathrooms, residence halls, dining facilities, and so on. Do you are you going to have to beef up your custodial staff considerably to be able to handle things like residence halls, restrooms, other restrooms on the campus, cleaning of of public surfaces? Uh, is that an added expense you're looking at taking on? Yes, in fact, we've already done that this spring. Um, even though uh, we're now uh, primarily remote on campus. Uh, as this uh, virus became an issue, we've, we've already increased the expenditures uh, for uh, maintenance and cleaning around campus, and, and we're going to be doing that uh, throughout the summer and into the fall as students return. We will obviously increase that significantly. How much of, of the move for your school reopening is, is economically driven? We hear that for many of the independent universities like Chapman, um, the concern is if you don't reopen the campus in fall, that you might lose so many students, the financial hit would be devastating. How much of a factor was that in the decision to reopen the campus in the fall? I would say it's a small factor for us. I think we're financially very secure. Uh, there's no question that if students don't return on campus in the fall, there will be a greater economic impact than if they do. But even with this plan to return to on-campus instruction in the fall, uh, 
uh, we're going to face some significant costs. We're going to be increasing financial aid to our students. We're going to be incurring greater costs, as we've already mentioned, for things like maintenance. We're going to be incurring a significant increase in our um, expenditures for technology. And all of those costs are costs that we are, are already planning to incur. So I don't think that this decision is, is primarily financially driven. The main reason we're, we're hoping and planning to return to on-campus instruction in the fall is that our students and their parents have overwhelmingly told us that that's what they want. And so while there are some students who have concerns, the vast majority are expressing a desire to get back to uh, in-class instruction. Have you polled uh, your student body to determine what percent you might lose by uh, having a return to campus? Uh, we haven't had a, a specific poll. We do have a lot of input from students. And uh, what we can tell you is that our uh, deposits for incoming freshmen are right in line with what they were a year ago and that our uh, pre-registration of returning students is actually higher than it was in previous years in terms of percentage of, of students planning to return. And, and so I don't think that these plans have had a negative impact. Now, as the summer progresses, uh, you know, some students may make a, a decision not to come back or may choose to uh, express a concern about returning. And what we are planning to do is have a certain number of classes that are available uh, in remote status for those students. We're also concerned about students who can't come back. And I'm thinking about our international students who may have travel restrictions uh, or students who have or are in a compromised position where returning would impose a health risk. And so we want to make sure we have uh, classes and resources available for those students as well. What percentage of uh, Chapman students are from Southern California? Uh, I believe that we're looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 percent, 40 to 45 percent. I can't uh, uh, say for sure. I know the number from Orange County is a little under 20 percent. Okay. Um, So just under half from the region. I was wondering because I was wondering if you might actually benefit from some students wanting to stay closer at home and wanting an on-campus experience. So maybe this actually is attracting more students because of the big pool here in Southern California. I think I think that's right. I think that we will have some students in that category. We will also have some students in in the situation where they uh, prefer to stay close to home because they, they have a need to uh, during this period, and so they're they're going to choose to stay close to home to be to basically live at home and not live in in dormitories at a faraway university. We're talking with Chapman University Provost and Executive VP for Academic Affairs, Glenn Pfeiffer. Also joining us from Azusa Pacific University, Interim Provost Rakshan Fernando. Thank you very much, Provost Fernando, for joining us. Um, uh, Anything a little different that you're looking at at Azusa than we've heard so far from the administrators at Concordia and Chapman? Uh, Larry, thank you so much for having me on this uh, this time with you. No, I think a lot of the things have already been mentioned. We have a return to campus task force that sort of dovetails with our academic return to campus task force that's creating a plan that really aligns with our state and county guidelines and directives. Um, one of the things that we pride ourselves uh, at APU is that our our faculty and staff really want to build long-term uh, wraparound kind of relationships with our students. And so that's one of the reasons why 
students overwhelmingly want to be on campus because of the types of relationships they have with our faculty, with our staff, and we're trying to create strategies about how to do that, uh, whether that be in a hybrid format, whether that be in a face-to-face format that sort of follows those county directives and state guidelines. Um, Also, we're, you know, really wanting to look at our courses and how do we achieve those student learning outcomes so that our students can be the difference makers that we want them to be uh, changing, you know, Southern California and beyond. So that's something else, you know, we're we're, we're looking at. Um, The other thing I'll say, Larry, just in terms of how we've closed out the spring semester that I think was successful is that we did an overall campaign of student calling and of faculty calling where we repurposed our employees to have high-touch conversations three times over the, you know, March, April, and May, where we were connecting with students to see how were they, they were doing, what resources they need, how they can be better served in their distance learning environment. And that, I think, was really, really an effective way, a bridge uh, to make it through the rest of the semester and so that we can help and strategize and think through how to effectively reopen campus in this new COVID environment. And, um, you know, you're in Los Angeles County where the per capita cases of COVID have been higher than in Orange County where Chapman and Concordia are. Um, Does that make you a bit more cautious about reopening APU to students? I mean, I think we're going to be following and closely monitoring the, the information and the guidelines that are coming out from uh, the L.A. County of Supervisors. I should also let you know that we're in multiple counties. Our regional campuses are in Victorville, in Inland Empire, in San Diego, in Orange, and in Murrieta. So we're dealing with multiple counties, and so that gives us a level of complexity that other institutions might not have. But, yeah, I think we are going to be very careful in in our reopening um, that we're aligning and we're in step with what L.A. County is kind of guiding and instructing at this point. Let me go back to Concordia President Michael Thomas. I know you were on a call earlier this morning with a number of your counterparts. And I'm just wondering um, what you're seeing as the trend. Is it, Does it appear that the majority of, of the private independent colleges, uh, universities here in Southern California are planning for on-campus classes in the fall? Uh, uh, Larry, I I would say that is the case. I mean, we understand that other public and uh, private universities, community colleges in our area are making different decisions uh, based on uh, their context and their circumstances. But um, many of the private schools like Concordia University Irvine have the benefit of being much more flexible. For example, at Concordia University Irvine, we are um, a small private Lutheran Christian university. We are very blessed to sit on a hill overlooking the city of Irvine. We're in a secluded, gated community with buildings and green spaces that spread 70 acres, and we have an average class size of 15. So these factors allow us to um, flexibly and safely modify our class modalities, um, our physical plant, and we can control the flow of traffic through our campus as well as offering spaces for outdoor recreation. So many of the private schools, because of our locations, but also because of our class sizes, are much more flexible when facing something like COVID-19. How are you going to accommodate 
um, professors or other staff members who are at greater risk because of age or underlying uh, health condition, um, but who for financial reasons might feel like they've got to come back to work, um, but you don't ideally want them to put themselves at risk. So are there ways of accommodating them? We are in the process right now of working with the provost and also other supervisors on campus to identify, using human resources as well, to identify faculty and staff who just um, either have immunocompromised uh, situations or just are not comfortable coming back to campus. So we're going to work with them individually. Um, with faculty, we can also um, uh, utilize those faculty in particular to offer online classes to the students who prefer that modality who are in similar situations. Uh, but um, again, as Pro Provost uh, Pfeiffer said, the vast majority of our faculty and staff and students are really longing for August and beyond when we can get back to some kind of face-to-face -face instruction. But of course, we're going to do so, even though we're optimistic, we're going to do so following all the state and local guidelines um, that are put in place. I want to thank you very much. That's the president of Concordia University, Irvine, Michael Thomas. My thanks to Rakshan Fernando, interim pros, provost at Azusa Pacific University, Christian uh, University in Azusa, and Glenn Pfeiffer, provost and executive vice president for academic affairs at Chapman University in the city of Orange. It's Air Talk on 89.3 KPECC. Coming up, we'll talk about some Southern California cities that are looking at ways to try and help their local restaurants when the time to reopen comes by allowing for more outdoor dining. We'll talk about the novel ideas in just 90 seconds on AirTalk. Wonderful to have you with us today on Air Talk. Just a reminder, Fresh Air with Terry Gross comes up next. We don't have a new news conference from Governor Gavin Newsom. He's cutting back to doing them about once a week or so. So you get to hear all of Fresh Air with Terry Gross coming up at noon here on 89.3. Well, number of Southern California cities very concerned about the future of their restaurants are trying to find ways to help them financially as they prepare to open for uh, inside dining or patio dining. One of the problems, of course, is that many restaurants don't have a patio, or if they do, it's relatively small. But what if you could close streets, turn them over to pedestrians and outdoor tables where people could be physically spaced, and restaurants could create uh, an alfresco experience and get more people eating out? That's exactly what cities like Long Beach, Palm Springs, and Pasadena are considering. Joining us is the mayor of Long Beach, Robert Garcia. Mayor, welcome back. Happy, happy to be here. Thank you're, you're becoming a regular. Uh, so uh, I want to ask you about how Long Beach is, is considering this. Would this be for Pine Avenue downtown? Well, we're looking at it across uh, the city, actually, and, and Pine is certainly one of our key streets that we're looking at. But this is going to be a great opportunity to really do two things. One is to provide safe uh, recreation opportunities for families so they have more space to, to walk and bike. And the second piece is a critical support for our restaurants, especially and maybe other retailers, allow them to expand uh, dining onto the street, 
um, and physically distance as that type of use is allowed by the state. And so we're, we're, I know we're getting close, and so we want to be ready on day one. Uh, and I wonder, would the opportunity exist for restaurants that are are not on one of these streets to be closed, that they could, um, uh, you know, bring a truck or something and also have outdoor dining in on, on one of these streets that's closed? Absolutely. I mean, there's a couple options. I think first is we have a we passed a, a whole program where a lot of restaurants will be able to do kind of small parklet type of, of structure. So it'd be kind of uh, just right in front of the street, uh, right where the restaurant is or so on streets. Others will be entire streets will be closed down to traffic completely. And there's either other models where it might be a restaurant that has a parking lot. And we might look at working within the parking lot to create an even larger space for the restaurant or even some sidewalk temporary expansion. So it's not a one-size-fits-all model. I think we're going to try to, anyone that wants to participate, we're going to try to work with them. And if it's possible, we, we want our restaurants to survive. Um, and a lot are having a really hard time right now. Well, I, th- I think there's going to be huge demand for this if you're able to make it work. What kind of feedback are you getting from Long Beach restaurants? Well, enormous. I mean, we have um, interest from uh, every corner of the city, you know, from from Second Street in Naples to, to downtown to Bixby Knolls. And this is really a strong interest. Um, obviously, we have a lot of our restaurants open doing the curbside takeout right now, and some are succeeding. That's not a good model for, for all of them. And so this will give you, really give an opportunity um, for these restaurants to survive uh, in many cases. And it provides really, I think, a, a, a unique opportunity for for diner to, to feel safer, to have physical distance, um, and, and enjoy something that's maybe a little bit more you know, European or South American. I was looking at the comments from Pasadena's Director of Public Health, like Long Beach Pasadena, has its own department, independent from the County Public Health Department, and her concern, she expressed, was that if Pasadena does this, there is the potential for it to become such an attraction that many people from outside the city come in to do that alfresco dining in Pasadena, and that the potential is that it brings asymptomatic COVID-19 spreaders into the city. Are you concerned about that in Long Beach, where uh, you are a destination city from other communities that surround you? You know, we don't share that concern as much. I mean, the truth is, is that this is going to start happening, I think, everywhere, uh, including across the the county and the region. And so I think um, it's a smart approach. And so I don't think it's going to be something that's only happening in Pasadena or Long Beach. I think it's going to be everywhere. And um, and if it can be done in a way that is safe, first and foremost, that is kind of driven by kind of health best practices, uh, then I think many of the restaurants are going to welcome uh, the business and support. Um, and so I think you're going to see this all over the place, certainly in Long Beach and, and, and across the region. So we're not as concerned. What we are excited about is the opportunity to um, experiment a little bit and see if there's opportunities for some permanency as well. We're talking with the mayor of Long Beach, Robert Garcia. Also with us, the mayor of Palm Springs. Speaking of destination cities, uh, Jeff Coors. Mayor Coors, thank you for being with us. Great. Thanks for having me on. How far is your city along in doing this? Um, You know, we started advocating for this with the state a little over a month ago for when we are allowed to have um, in-person dining to be able to close streets, use parking lots, very similar to what Mayor Garcia talked about. We're really looking at every opportunity, you know, every Thursday night for over 20 years before um, the stay at home orders, we closed Palm Canyon Drive, our main downtown street for a pedestrian festival called Street Fair. I've, I've attended. It's a wonderful event. 
Yeah, it's really wonderful. And it's going to be longer till we can do that again. But if we could close that down, we've looked at Arenas, which is our LGBT um, bars and restaurants. And we've looked at some of the parking lots already working with our restaurants where we could close those down pedestrian. We could allow retail to have kiosks on the street um, and really make it a great place to be. We still have to follow all the state's rules when this can happen. And also the people can't congregate, you know, waiting for tables all clustered together because we want to do this safely. If we do it safely, we're going to be able to keep it open longer term. And like Long Beach, we're also looking at how this could might work permanently in some of these spaces, because look, whether it's Long Beach or Palm Springs, we both have the amazing unique restaurants that people love and our outdoor weather, especially for Palm Springs, the summer nights, are perfect for dining outside. We're talking with the mayor of Palm Springs, Jeff Kors, the mayor of Long Beach, Robert Garcia. If you'd like to weigh in on this, and it's not just their two cities, but others as well with significant restaurant culture are looking at ways of helping financially those restaurants and also giving people opportunities to safely socialize by closing streets and having dining on those streets. What do you think about the ideas? This is this something you'd embrace or you'd be concerned about? We'll get your thoughts at 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in just a minute. Adapting to COVID-19 and the future of restaurants, cities are looking at ways of boosting business for restaurants whose futures are endangered financially. And one of the ways is to create outdoor spaces where people can eat while distancing from each other um, safely, following public health directives, but being able to go to a place and to eat dinner together. So in Pasadena, they're talking about Colorado Boulevard in Old Pasadena, Long Beach, looking at Pine and downtown, streets in Bixby Knolls and other parts of the city. Uh, Palm Springs, of course, with its main drag, which is prime for that, as Mayor Coors was telling us, they already have the street event every Thursday night, um, except for these past several weeks because of COVID-19. So my question for you is, what do you think of the concept? Is this something that you would look forward to? Uh, Certainly we've seen in a number of other cities, this is a part of the fabric of those cities. It's it's um, one of the major social destinations is to outdoor dining districts. 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. Julie in the Valley writes, I've never understood why outdoor dining is so popular in rainy London and Paris, but not in Los Angeles. This could be a great move with or without the virus. Uh, Norma, similarly writing, you can travel all over the world and find sidewalk cafes and patios, but they seem in fairly short supply in SoCal of all places. I hope this happens. It would certainly help me with feeling comfortable dining out. Again, 866-893-KPCC or the AirTalk page, kpcc.org. And I'd particularly like to hear from restaurateurs what you think of this idea. Are you kind of... um, um, you know, thinking thinking about how you could best take advantage of this and whether you could uh, be able to transport your food 
to an outdoor location, a parking lot, or a street, and to be able to recreate the kind of experience your customers like. Maybe it would expose you to a whole new range of customers by doing this. 866-893-KPECC. Mayor Coors, I hate to bring up the unpleasant past, but I remember decades ago when Palm Springs was overrun at spring break by young people acting atrociously, and it became uh, such a problem that the city really had to shut itself down to spring breakers. Um, Obviously, you're looking at a different clientele for restaurants now, but are you at all concerned that it could be difficult to socially distance if you end up with huge crowds for these outdoor restaurants? Um, You know, we're not for one main reason. The state guidelines are really clear that you can't just show up. It's going to be by reservation um, to reserve a table. They're even recommending people wait till they get a text that the table is close to ready before they come. So it's going to be done slowly and cautiously so that we don't have that issue. You know, on our Thursday nights, as we've discussed, and you've been to our great street fair, there are thousands of people and it all works really well. We can't do that yet, of course, because of the need for social distancing. Um, but we already have great patios on our restaurants, and to be able to expand them into the street is going to, as you know, as you said, make people feel much safer um, going out. Because we know outdoors is always going to be safer than being close together indoors with a lot of people. Do you have a sense? I know everybody's loath to put a time frame on this because um, information changes almost daily when it comes to COVID nineteen. But Mayor Coors, do you? Do you, in your mind, do you sort of have a, an ideal uh, time frame for starting this? You know, it's going to come down to when the state will allow either Riverside County, uh, which we're in, or the Coachella Valley as a region, which we've advocated, um, to move through the rest of phase two. We have submitted plans. The county has submitted plans to the state as under the newer guidelines the governor recently announced for counties. The county feels they are they have met them. So as soon as we get approval, we want to be ready to go. And that's going to be the trick is, you know, reaching out, getting all the restaurants um, ready so that when we are ready to go, we can launch it. We don't have to wait three weeks or a month to get going. Well, and is that something you're in process with with the restaurants or is because the time frame is so uncertain, the restaurants don't really want to commit to what they're going to do when until they know? Yeah, we are. We have four restaurant representatives on our reentry task force, and they've been working on this as well and reaching out to the, all the restaurants um, in the city on this. And everyone's very excited. We can't apply for the temporary permit. Each restaurant has to apply to the state. It's just a simple over the counter form until the county says we can do it. So even once we know, it'll take a little time, but we want everyone to have the applications ready who want to do this and let us know where they want to do it so we can work with them and be prepared. That's uh, Jeff Kors joining us, the mayor of Palm Springs. Zach in Los Feliz, I understand you've got a restaurant and bar. What do you think of this idea? Would it work for your location? Yeah, so, I mean, I own uh, a bar called Tabla Rasa and another one just called Silver Lake Lounge. And part of the idea is with any of these uh, bars and restaurants moving outside, it's, it's really great in theory and can work for people that have the space. But one of the things, as we're all seeing, is any of these ideas they have an added cost to them. So having to buy umbrellas for the sun or furniture or other things, and we're already investing in new you know, protective equipment and fiberglass barriers and all those things. So it's, it's, uh, it can be a good idea for some places, uh, but it's also, there's just a cost associated with it. And 
for what what are you getting for and that's the whole conversation i think yeah yeah and so for you how would you make that decision zach as to whether it's worth buying all the tables chairs some uh, umbrellas misters if necessary how do you, how do you determine whether it, it would be profitable to do this i mean you look at the number of seats that you could serve you could add because I, I think the idea is that you're expanding your dining room right so because right now if your dining room is limited in capacity because it's being limited you're expanding it outside so you can increase your capacity. So it's, I mean, at some point it's in a math equation of how many people you can serve. And, you know, we're on Hollywood Boulevard. So we, I mean, there's a couple, you could put a, a table on the sidewalk and that would be about it. So, you know, but other places might have bigger spaces, parking lots and side yards or whatever yeah. they are, what have you. And that, that may, the math may work for them. Okay. Zach, that makes sense. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Tabula Rasa uh, 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 in uh, the Silver Lake Los Feliz area. Let me go back to Mayor Robert Garcia, Long Beach. R- real quickly, Mayor Garcia, do you have any timeline in mind for this? There's two pieces of it. I mean, the the outdoor neighborhood recreation piece, which is closing streets and, and neighborhoods, we think we're going to start that piece, you know, within within the week, and we should start. Oh wow! Uh, some uh, changes quickly. As far as the piece for the uh, for the outdoor dining, it's really dependent on the state. I think once the state moves and allows this use, obviously it's not allowed yet. We just want to be ready to 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 be able to move quickly once that happens. All right. Uh, yeah, the governor's indicated it might be soon. All right. Well, thank you so much. It'll be interesting to see if you start closing off the streets as soon as this week, uh, what that means for people just coming out and enjoying it for pedestrian, biking, and other purposes. That's Robert Garcia, mayor of Long Beach. Jeff uh, Coors with us, mayor of Palm Springs. Thank you so much for joining us on Air Talk. Fresh Air with Terry Gross is next. Tomorrow, District Attorney Jackie Lacey and Sheriff Villanueva both join us.